Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration... I just want to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming. On ABC Radio. When I see a mother, when I see a sister, when I see a father that's stereotyped, and I see that they've gone through similar things or their child's been removed or their son's been incarcerated, was meant to be released in three weeks and suddenly they're found dead in their cell. That anger is a mixture of anger, love, demanding justice for what we all inherently have a right to. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be at this. I'm, I'm living for the day that we actually don't have to call a community protest on. Anger to Action, strategies to best channel energy to bring about positive change for First Nations communities. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. Community activism has been a major theme for much of this year, highlighted by the Black Lives Matter protests held around the globe following the death of African-American man George Floyd in May. Here in Australia, rallies held around the country called for justice for the families of the over 437 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission. But activism can take many forms, whether it's marching in the streets, raising awareness through the arts or influencing change through the social justice sector. So what are the best strategies to channel community anger into a movement for social justice? That was the issue put to a panel of three of the country's leading young First Nations activists as part of NAIDOC Week celebrations. Hosted by the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence, Anger to Action also explored what motivates our next generation of activists fighting for human rights in the face of adversity. Joining the conversation were Mick O'Loughlin, Education Officer for Indigenous X, activist Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts and emerging rapper musician Barker. The discussion was moderated by William Trulin, CEO of Black Aboriginal Corporation. Let's listen in now as panellist Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts reflects on what it meant for her personally to be awarded the 2019 Young People's Human Rights Medal. I think to this day, I I don't know who nominated me. And if you are out there, I'd love to know who you are because I'd like to say thank you. But that whole experience for me was very much a shock and very much also something to be really proud of. When I had my nephew there with me, seeing his smile and his excitement was the foundation of my whole speech. When I did share that speech, I placed him in front of me because as First Nations women and as matriarchs in our community, the priority is our children and the priority is our young people. And so when I had my baby nephew there, for me it was him knowing, no, 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 this is your right to be here and not a privilege to be here. And you need to know that wherever we are in this world, whether we're here on the front stage, whether we're in our rooms, in our communities, across the seas, in another country, you have a right to be living and surviving. And we know more than anyone in our communities that for black people and for black men and for black women and for black transgender people that the right to survival isn't necessarily the thing that goes for us. And so for me, being in that moment, accepting that speech and being able to talk about the power of abolition and talk about the power of interchanging resources to a bunch of corporate spaces that are out there, in particular the Department of Communities and Justice that has a lot to answer for, they were nominated for an award. And for me to speak to them and say, actually, the very reason I'm here is because of your injustice, and I'm not afraid to tell you that, and I'm not afraid to share that with you, 
you really shouldn't have a seat at this table because of what you've been perpetrating against our people. And they need to be held to account for that. So for me, it was a real honour and it was an honour of survival of, of the people that have walked before and, and my baby nephew who, who's going to walk ahead. Yeah, and what an incredible opportunity for your nephew to see what does it mean to be young, black and deadly and seeing you receive that award. So congratulations, a huge Thank kudos you to you and for all your amazing work that you do. We're going to talk about it a bit, a bit later on, but I want to welcome um, my sister who um, got here and um, unfortunately we got caught up in the traffic, but she got here, bless her soul. So Barker is a, and I'm going to pronounce this right, if I don't correct me, Malangapa and, um, and Darkenji woman. Malangapa Barkenji. Very close. <laughs> As originally from Western, uh, Western New South Wales, she expressed herself and the issues impacting our communities through music. This year, she released her debut single, For My Titters. And if you haven't heard it, it's pretty amazing. And you can find it on YouTube and SoundCloud and Spotify, sis. Yeah, deadly. And to be quite honest, she's made waves in the whole entire uh, music industry and you only have to see the passion in her, her songs. And for me, I, I, I'm so inspired by you every single day. Um, so welcome Thank you. And thanks for coming. Oh, great to be here. Yes, it is. So your music for me is, is, is something that I listen to when I want to find strength. There is so much kind of um, solace in your words and, and your delivery. And I know that you've had um, people saying you should soften your music and stuff. Can I just, we'd just like to hear a bit more about that experience about, you know, to get into mainstream music, people are telling you to soften your words. Like, what was that like? Um, no, it was, I guess it's... Um... You know, it's insulting to hear people say soften who you are because I guess, you know, as a black woman, you take pride in being strong and that's something that's embedded in you that you can't really go, oh, oh, I don't want it no more. I'm going to be a bit soft. Mm. <laughs> like, I can't be soft. So I guess when it was like, you know, hearing those things or you can't write about those things, they won't like it or I just wanted to come into the industry and put out music that I needed to hear, you know, as a young black sister, that something that... You know, where it's just like we're um, unapologetically truthful and, yeah, just rip it. Yeah, look, I think it's such an important time to have music like that that represents so many um, people's feelings and views in the current environment we're living. And I, th- you know, I think, you know, credit to you for not being staunch in your resilient and not changing that. And I think, you know, screw what they say. Let's do it our way, right? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, sis. Welcome. And lastly, I'd like to introduce my brother, Michael O'Loughlin, a Gamilaroi man from IndigiX. And he's an Aboriginal-owned business, an independently-run online media platform. It's an incredible website. Please go and get alternative media news from these fellas because uh, it is such a, an incredible um, platform. Originally from Maury, Mark has been working with Aboriginal youth for the past 20 years in various roles, ranging from mentoring to at-risk youth, collaborating with high school and supporting young people in the juvenile justice system. So welcome, brother Mike, streaming all the way up at Maury, are you? Sorry, no, I'm actually in Newcastle at the moment. Newcastle, got that right. Uh, yeah, no, thank you again for the opportunity and the chance to join such an esteemed panel. Thank you. So, Michael, can you tell us a bit about how IndigiX started um, and creating a media platform by Mob for Mob. Yep. So Indigenous X started about eight years ago. Luke Pearson's the founder and CEO of the company, and it started off on Twitter as a platform for us to get Indigenous voices heard that weren't being heard. And so the concept to start with was each week a different Indigenous person would host the Twitter account and talk about whatever they wanted. We don't moderate what they talk about. Um, It's a chance to get their stories out. 
And so it's grown from there. We still have that account that we have a different Indigenous person each week hosting, but we've also expanded from there into an independent media source. So we have authors come and send us stories, which we publish on our website for people to come and have a look at. We also collaborate with The Guardian. We have a piece by the Indigenous ex-hosts each week that goes into The Guardian. But yeah, so we're expanding and growing and just putting out that Indigenous people, we've had our voice suppressed for so long and mainstream media is not going to be paying any attention to us. So we're getting our stories and our voices out there our way. Yeah, and I, um, I've had um, a bit of engagement with Indigenous X in, in the last recent years, and I just think it's amazing that you're providing opportunities for all of our diversity within Aboriginal communities, not just, I guess, some of our main focus. So we had an opportunity to present some uh, and get two people to co-write and curate their Twitter account through Mardi Gras this year, and I just thought it was a really incredible opportunity for you guys to provide that space uh, for queer black people to come and represent what does it mean to be queer and Aboriginal. So um, I just want to thank uh, IndigX for allowing that to happen. So on that note, we're here today to talk about anger to action with the history of the injustice of First Nations people and creating intergenerational trauma and the lack of generational health. There's a lot that people need to be angry about, and there's a lot that mob are angry about, this discussion would explore the ideas of the most effective ways to channel our anger into action. How do we strategize, mobilize to create social change for mob? Panelists, listeners, invite. We want to invite you to share your thoughts, the good, bad, indifferent, and ugly, and we want to have the hard conversations today. So I want to start off with a topic which started in more recent um, months with the Black Lives Matter movements before the pandemic started, or actually it was in the midst of the pandemics as well, around the defunding of police, and it was an international movement. I want to talk about that concept here in Australia, but I also want to ex- expand that and talk about how do we defund the structure that keeps Aboriginal people impoverished, and what does that mean for you fellas? I'm going to go to you, Vanessa, first off, and would like to hear your thoughts about the, the concept of the defunding police, and what does it actually mean to talk about defunding the system that keeps us impoverished? Yeah. I think it's a really good question and, and it's a big question that's going to need to involve yarns from all different spaces. But I think when we're talking about defunding the police, there tends to be two groups of people. And there's two groups of people. One group is either the abolitionists, which is like defund the police, de-incarcerate, free our children, free our young people, free all our prisoners and start shutting down these gates that are keeping our people locked up and perpetrating more criminality ideologies and more harm inflicted on our people. And then there's the other category, which is the reformers. And so the reformers very much closely links with when we're changing that defund, where is that funding going when we're removing it from the prison system, when we're choosing to say, you know what, too much expenditure is going into this space, we need to now put it in another avenue. And for me, I guess when I'm talking from, my, I guess, my personal perspective, it's very much one of an abolitionist where we need to see these prison systems abolished altogether because it's the very same narrative of our invasion process. Mm. The moments of invasion stem from policing our people. It stemmed from these ships coming in and locking us up, treating our women, our children as slaves and locking us away. And that narrative is very much entrenched in whiteness. And I think if we're serious about change and we're serious about building our communities and breaking those percentages of poverty because we are one of the most impoverished people in the world, which is leading to incarceration, which is keeping these ministers in their positions, which is giving researchers their jobs, which is giving all of this 
I don't know, how do I say it, like this momentum to, to the wider public to utilise our poverty as a means for their privilege, mm. that needs to be seriously talked about. And so for me, I say we need to shut down these prisons, we need to free our children and young people. There's talks now about raising the criminal age of responsibility. No child, no young person and no First Nations person should be imprisoned in this country. We should be providing rehabilitation, effective support and actually really if we're serious about doing change to action, anger to action, well, let's use our anger to love and let's actually free our people and let's be serious about defunding instead of increasing the poverty gap. Yeah. And Barker? Just blown away. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with a lot with what Sis says. Like, I would love to see the abolishments of prisons and, you know, you see our people getting locked up for things that we introduce to our people and it's just like how can you introduce something to somebody and then further criminalise them more? And you see that in the prison system from being a sister who was incarcerated, you know, how they work you while you're inside and you're further perpetrated. So, yeah, for me, defunding the police is it's a huge thing that you can see, like, police here are overworked and or not doing their jobs at all or properly at all and yeah I feel like there needs to be way more services to help people because you know it's just while they're making money off our black bodies so it's just a vicious cycle of you know incarceration and poverty yeah, yeah. And look, we're going to talk about um, money, as we call it, black money being invested into Aboriginal communities around the country in a moment. But I'm just going to go to Mike first. Your thoughts on this, Michael, around the idea of defunding of police and or the system that keeps Aboriginal people impoverished? Yeah, I was, especially during my time working within, well, working to support Aboriginal, particularly and any youth in the justice system, my thoughts were it was always, there wasn't enough put into early engagement or rehabilitation type programs because a lot of the young people that we have caught up in the system, if there had have been something in place before they got linked into the system, I think the majority of them wouldn't have been further involved or entrenched in it. And we all know that once we start getting involved and entrenched in the system, it's an ongoing process. And so for me, the idea of the rehabilitations and the early prevention programs, working with communities to help our young people is what is needed because we can't look at trying to fix a problem after it's already happened. We need to get in there beforehand and support our families, our communities, our kids to prevent those problems happening in the first place. Yeah. You made a comment there, Mike, around we need to put more into it. One might say that the Aboriginal or the Indigenous spend each year in this country is $35 billion, is what the recent report out of the Productivity Commission speaks to. One might think that that's a lot of money, right? But what I think is the interesting conversation that we should yarn about is how much of that is actually interfacing with Aboriginal communities. So in 2016, the Productivity Commission released a report that talks about $5.9 out of $31 billion are interfacing with communities based on programs. So what tells us that where does that other $26 billion go? Mm. It's very much in line with what you fellas are t- saying there. Do you think that it's going to cost $31 billion to keep e- Aboriginal people out of impoverishment each year, Vanessa? 
I think if we definitely use that source of funding instead of actually funding corrective services, funding policing, funding the military weaponry force that we have literally in our local police station up in Redfern, Walgett, all these different communities, if we took away that funding and we placed that into community-driven initiatives, I have no doubt that $31 billion will be more than enough. And not to mention just recognising us as self-determined people there's a real failure in, in our systems, literally it's from policy decision levels, where there's just not enough funding being directed to the community organisations that are actually delivering the product. Like this is where the changes are actually happening. It's coming from grassroots organisations, just like your organisation, Black Q, and just like different spaces out there that are saying, you know what, we actually have a relationship with our communities we actually know how to work with our children and young people. If it wasn't for this horrific gentrification that's happening in our communities, do you really think our people would be homeless? Yeah. Where you see that building, where you see that homeless sister or brother, where you see that person having an episode because they're coming through from drug addiction or what white Australia has ultimately brought to our people, take a moment to deeply reflect and say, well, if they weren't going through that moment, if that building wasn't there... That'd be our villages, it'd be our communities, it'd be our kinship. And so start resourcing that funding to our principles of who we really are as First Nations people because we have the answers, we've always had the answers, and I guarantee if we take away that funding from those spaces, and I'm talking funding away from keeping our children out of home care, funding away from imprisoning our people in the criminal justice system, and funding away from organisations that are doing it just to feel good about themselves, to say, yep, we're for the black movement, we're this, we're that, give us your money... I'm sorry, let's reflect on that and let's go down to the grassroots organisations, the organisations where, you know what, maybe it's a bit difficult to write that policy report and put it together to say how we're achieving these outcomes, but do the report our way. You go speak to those children and have a yarn with them and they'll tell you who they feel safe with. And I guarantee it's with an elder and community versus that corporate responsibility that's taking that funding. So, Barker, how do you think we do this? What is, what's the call to action? Like, you know, as mob and thinking about your experience as an artist and, you know, and how you deliver, what, what can we do to empower community to start having these conversations? Getting together, I guess, getting mobbed together like used to, sitting and yarn and um, having those connections where we can sit up around a campfire and, you know, yarn, go back to those old ways where just being around, like, focusing it on our kids and safe places and stuff where we can yarn. And I guess it's even, it just made me question everything, like that money. It's like I've been helped by more non-for-profit organisations than I have been helped by government organisations. And it's just like, where is this money going that's supposedly given to us? And I just think getting mobbed together is, yeah, we need to come together. And But then there's so many different opinions too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think there's a real opportunity around how do we use the creative industry like your music to be able to do that. And I think we should have a deadly on after this about what does that look like. But to you, Mike, with your work, with your various roles with young people over your career, how have you found the funding systems or the systems that fund organisations? Have they been um, effective in your opinion? And if not, what do we need to be doing better and how do we turn our anger into action? Look, it's... I've been a mixed bag. There have been some programs and stuff where I've seen that have been totally underfunded to the point where it's very little. There are a lot of people running those programs of volunteers, giving up their own time to help those kids for the sake of helping our kids that have been getting some really good results. And 
then I've seen other programs where there's been thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars chucked at programs that just don't seem to be getting the results. They all have their great intentions, but whether the money is getting to where it needs to be, one of the things that we need to look at when we're looking at the money side of things is where this money is going. How much of this money is actually going to communities, Indigenous organisations? How many of them are going to government departments? How much of it is going to white organisations? So we really need to have a look at that and stand up and say, look, for such a long time, we've not had that opportunity to self-govern ourselves and look after our own people without being watched over or having to report to somebody else. It's time for us to have that opportunity to say, give us the money. We know what's best for our kids. We know what's best for our communities. Give us the opportunity to do that. You've just heard Mick O'Loughlin, Education Officer with the online media organisation Indigenous X. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight we're bringing you the online forum Anger to Action, hosted by the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence as part of NAIDOC Week celebrations. Joining in the conversation were activist and winner of the 2019 Young People's Human Rights Medal, Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts, artist and musician Barker, and education officer with Indigenous X, Miko Lachlan. We'll return to the panel shortly, but first, let's hear some music from Barker. This track is called For My Titters. Put this over your father, so you think strong. Put this under your mickeys. So you see your ancestors walking with you. Put this under your yalka. So you always speak the truth. Never be ashamed of who you are. Treated as 
I'm not having to drink. So she stands with you, then stand with her. Cause handing down this healing is a bigger picture. Got nothing to do with your sexual preference. This is about our solidarity, that's hidden question. Huh? Barker with the track For My Titters. Let's return now to our panel discussion and we pick up the conversation with Barker as she details the benefits of using creative processes as an outlet for anger as well as an effective tool for activism. I guess for me personally, um, anger has always been a really funny emotion for me to deal with. When it arises, I don't know how to go about it or what to do with it. So it's kind of come out really bad or, you know, really weird. And since I found my music or came back to my music in my art form, I found a way to outlet my anger where it's in a healthy way, where I can actually express myself. And I think for a lot of our mob, we're so talented and we're so clever and gifted that there's other outlets to, you know, not to be, because, um, you know, they love that stereotype, angry black woman or angry black mm, yeah. fella. And it's like, well, why wouldn't we be mad, you know? But, yeah, I guess music gives me a way where it's like, oh, I can kind of plan things out in my head where it's like, oh, it comes out how I want it to and rather than coming out or different ways. So, yeah, I think for mobs would be like, you know, if you got that art or you got that love for writing or you got that love for nature and stuff, get back into those things because, yeah, anger has, I think for a lot of mob, it's a really funny emotion to have because we've always been a, a people of peace and... Yeah, look, I think there's a really important key message there. And I think there's always a time and a place to be angry and marching the streets. But how do we talk about it? How do we come from a strength base and channel that and funnel that anger into a, into a positive that promotes change? So thank you for sharing that. I think it's a really, really good insight. And Vanessa, your experience with the other home care system, you know, in all of the essence, you should be a jaded young girl, but you're sitting here in the staunch reality of this incredible young woman. How did you funnel that anger and that, and that sadness into winning a Human Rights Medal Award of 2019? I think and you're probably a witness to, to this as well, sis, but people very much do see a front. They very much see that strength, that you're this, you're resilient, you got a medal. But 
the reality is this, the system has done damage. I might be this person that can come out here and, and spin a yarn and hold my grace, you know, but my beautiful partner will be a testament to this and, and my friends and my community and as First Nations sisters and brothers in this space right now, we're, we're feeling it as well. I definitely struggle and I definitely struggle with combating the time that was taken and what I was robbed of from mm. my family, my community. You know, being removed at 10 and a half the same year that Kevin Rudd formulated his apology, that same year they took me from my father in our community. That is something that I'll, I'll never forget. That trauma that that system inflicted on me in the middle of the night, ripping me out of my father's arms, is something that's never, ever going to go away. And that's a, life, that's a lifelong therapy mm-hmm. and that's a lifelong therapy in the sense of a professional, but also my therapy is actually reclaiming who we are as First Nations people and actually coming together in these spaces and sharing that. And I drive that in community protests when organising, when I see a mother, when I see a sister, when I see a father that's stereotyped and I see that they've gone through similar things or their child's been removed or their son's been incarcerated, was meant to be released in three weeks and suddenly they're found dead in their cell. That anger is a mixture of anger, love, demanding justice for what we all inherently have a right to. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be at this. I'm, I'm living for the day that we actually don't have to call a community protest on. Yeah. I'm living for the day that we don't get the phone call that a brother boy or a sister girl hasn't committed suicide because they were subjected to the implications of what intergenerational trauma has left us with. And so for me, when it's driving that change and it's going out there and, and it's, it's building on the much bigger fight that our ancestors have been fighting nonstop, it's remembering that. And it's remembering no matter where I am in the space, whether it's on that front line is so cheesy, but whether it's out in community because, you know, we've been giving cultural consent to lead this space, well, it's also remembering that it's, it's all of our space. And for our children and young people, it needs to be healing. Because I remember growing up, going to protest with my father, mm. walking the reconciliation march um, with my pop and my dad. And I could tell when I look back and I remember his eyes and his moment in that time. For him, it was very much like, oh, I hope, hope for Bub right now that we're just doing this now. And then I'm 24 years old and it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I hope that I'm the last generation that has to be doing this. And we hear it through Barker's incredible music and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Barker's putting the words together so that we can actually understand what we're feeling because we've never been given the privilege to understand what we're feeling properly because this system has just put so much harm and anger and frustration and hurt within us. How can we ever come through with that? And that's why there's so much honour and love in, in the creativity, in the in Digitech, in the spaces that we're creating because it creates that real action and that real anger being driven in the most, I guess, I don't want to say appropriate because if you're angry, you're angry and it's mm. valid. And to police you would say, well, I may as well go join Redfern Police Station. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's all yeah. valid. Look, I think it's a really uh, a key point there around, you know, as mob we always have to hold that mantle and we always have to carry ourselves in spaces and, and be professional. And sometimes we should just acknowledge that mob can't do that and that's okay. And I think there's a really key point out of that takeaway is that, yes, mobs should be angry and they should be allowed to be angry. And how do we support them so when they're angry, when they've overcome that anger, they can move that into action. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. And, Michael, uh, with your 20 years' experience of working very well, particularly in the, uh, you know, the youth space as well, like, I would assume you've had moments of your career where you've felt, you know, like why and hard and been angry. How have you dealt with that? And what are some of the kind of key messages around that you can share with our audience today? 
Yeah, there's been a lot of times where I've been seen situations of working with young fellas and you do, you get angry because you can see the systems that are in place aren't helping or they're actively suppressing. And you see, this is the stuff that I grew up with growing in Maury. You see the same things still happening to our kids today. And it was a, quite a few times I remember coming home quite angry and like I'd been headbutting a brick wall all day, just trying to make a point, trying to get through to those around me at work and stuff like that the systems weren't working and that we need to start doing better. And not for me personally, I turned to culture for a lot of time and whether that was through my paintings, my dancing, my songs, teaching those to the young people that I was working with, giving them those experiences that for me I didn't have growing up or that my parents didn't have growing up as well and incorporating that into trying to work with these kids. Yeah, it's for me we all have the right to be angry, we all have the right to be tired. We've been fighting this fight for over 200 years and we're still fighting an ongoing battle. Yes, we're tired. Yes, we're angry. Yes, we have the right to say that things aren't going the way we want to. And so it's encouraging those young people that are coming behind us and the people of my generation to keep going, getting our voices out there, getting heard. That's a big one for me, just getting our voices out there because like I've mentioned earlier and as we were all aware, the only time you see any blackfellas on mainstream media is if it's sport or if they've done something getting caught up in the legal system. Mm. We don't have those positive messages put out there by the media. We don't have those positive stories. So for me, it's about us getting those out there and helping people realise that we do have a voice and that if we come together, we've got a louder voice. Yeah. And look, there's a really interesting theme with everyone's comments around is culture being a way to connect and heal and help deal with that. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts around, um, and to your point, Michael, around how do we use culture in 2020 and connect that with, I guess, a social media kind of movement. And I think, Michael, you talked to it um, in regards to Indigiex. I'd like to unpack how do we use that space or how do we use culture as a way to connect mob? And what does it mean to use social media to bring about change? Because I know a lot of social movements are currently happening out of social media. And I think access to information is, and you only have to look to young people particularly is where you start seeing, and I call, them, I call them curious kids. Kids have access to information now, which none of us used to have access to. So I'd like to talk about how do we connect culture with a social media or a media movement? And what, you know, do you think that is a way to move forward around how we can transfer anger into action? I'm going to go to you first, Michael. Yeah, so I think, like you said, social media access, the world's changed in the last 20 years. The level of access that we've had, we've got to media, social media, is just beyond whatever it was initially thought to be. To involve the culture aspect of that, it's about building those communities, building our online communities, getting our stories out there, working with each other. Too often on social media platforms, you'll see one group of blackfellas will be at war or going against another group of blackfellas on social media 
it happens everywhere. It's very amplified on social media. But once we start breaking down those barriers and those infights and stuff, we're going to be able to do a lot more, I think, particularly with the social media space. One of the things that we're looking at working on with Indigenous X is helping to promote cultural values and skills and knowledges through social media. So having um, educational videos, uh, putting stuff out there, increasing our method of getting the stories and our voices out there. Yeah, amazing. And Barker, obviously with your music, uh, social media and uh, platforms like YouTube and, and Spotify have obviously amplified your ability. What would be your views around uh, using it for a social movement and how would that work from a creative standpoint? Um, I think like I think it would work for our young ones because they're very visual and they like those things. I mean, I know a lot of work, the real work happens off social media. Mm. Social media is good to get information across when things are like, but it's not, you know, I wouldn't put it up there with the greatest way to pull people into like activism or making change. But it is great to get messages out there and like there are great platforms to bring awareness and but um, it's kind of disheartening because after the Black Lives Matter movement and seeing so many people stand with us, then just to fall off, it's like, mm. ah, it's just, you know, tokenistic stuff and it's like, oh, is it just for show? And, yeah, so social media, I kind of, like, yeah. love it and then I'm like, oh, it makes me wild. So, <laughs> it's yeah. A, yeah, it's a really good point. And, um What's the call to action then to community for that? Not just to Blackfellas, but to the wider community then, Vanessa, because it's to your point, Barker, it's great. They put you, you put your black tile up. But then what happens after that? What's the call to action? Vanessa? I think, um, you know, Barker's 100% correct. Like, social media is the littlest part mm. in the whole movement, the biggest part is the culture. And if you're not Indigenous and you want to be a part of that movement, not just because it's trending for a week and, and you feel woke or, or real deadly because you want to be a part of that for that one week, if you want to be a part of something real, if you want to be a part of 60,000-plus years of history and strength and resilience, which is who we are in your music, there's actually a line that you say, I think it's in For My Titters, if you don't respect your titters, don't expect us to honour you, referring mm. to men, I think also referring to some of the black men that have... That not have that can be a bit complacent in the moment, so we need to call this action. You could not be more spot on. Mm. If you don't respect your titters, don't expect us to honour. And that's the reality. Black women, black children are being murdered out there at the highest rates in the world. Mm. As if that's not your calling. Women are birthing you into this world. You're not going to respect your sisters across. Show up for justice. And that's a mic drop moment, everybody. Full blown mic drop moment. Just take it in. Sorry? Sorry, full mic drop moment. Oh. Yeah, serving it to the children. <laughs> that's you. That's yeah. Mark is like, you drop that mic. <laughs> but that's what I think is, is the foundation of, of justice and organising protests is actually culture. Mm. And, you know, one of the things when, when you know, I get the, the real privilege when community says, do you mind help organising this protest, is the first priority is, well, which elders and communities and traditional owners are going to hold this space right now? Because we do not need our children and we do not need our elders and our middle ground First Nations sisters and brothers to come into a space where we're just perpetrating more trauma. We're reliving the same experiences that we've been subjected to since the very first moments of imprisonment invasion yeah. and invasion. So for me, it's very much put culture at the front line, 
bring our elders in, allow them to hold space because they are honestly the knowledge holders, the truth tellers and the creators of everything we're doing. And then we will see everything kind of fall through after. Social media is the small part, but there's a big part when you only choose to acknowledge us for a week. (laughs) Yeah, and look, there's a really interesting, I'm going to, there's a really interesting um, segue of that, which I'm going to go into, um, which is going to be a bit off script. But um, the idea within social media, we as blackfellas own power of definition, we to define what language and what language means to us as blackfellas. Within the Western world or in you know, mainstream Australia, we don't own power of definition. So when we write policies or we write procedures or we write legislation, it's done by everyone other than blackfellas. How do we change that narrative? How do we educate those fellas who are going to put that tile up? So then after that week, they're, they're going to help us redefine, that, I guess, the meaning. And how do we influence that? So we as blackfellas don't own power of definition. We don't write the policies. What does it look like around how do we create conversations around restructuring the system that is written on our terms and not on Western terms? And as in shifting that power from whiteness and giving power to community? Yeah. I think one of the beautiful things that you did share, Will, is like power isn't necessarily a part of who we are. We're very Mm. much, we're the same. If you need something and I've got it, here you go. If I need something and you've got it, thank you, thank you. And even the idea of um, thank yous weren't necessarily a part of our culture and who we are. We just did things because it's just what you do as part of our survival and who we are. But I think in terms of looking at where we are in, in 2020 right now, there is something serious and a serious conversation to be had around, well, who's making these decisions? And, and a prime example is something that, you know, we are advocating like nonstop for is, is accountability. And it's about being accountable for when that abuse of power occurs. And the perfect example for that is when there is an Aboriginal death in custody, why is the DPP investigating the DPP? Mm. Suddenly it's equal on your platform, but when they're using that on us, suddenly we don't even get a say in that. When coroners are out there recommending to the DPP, it actually needs to go through criminal processes. You need to take it separate from this colonial inquest process. The DPP chooses to throw it out the window. This is where the power is sitting and it's time for accountability within those systems to say, you know what, none of this investigating, investigating one another, none of this we're making decisions without First Nations people, no conversations without us or about us because we can dictate our own lives and we can dictate what works for us. And, you know, I said, I said it a little bit earlier, yeah, policy papers might be hard to write, proving these, these gammon, qualitative, quantitative, numerical data that this gammon government wants us to be producing, yeah, it might be difficult, but I guarantee you understand our approach of learning mm. or you welcome our approach of learning and yet you'll see different outcomes and there will be a redistribution of power and expenditure. Yeah. Michael, have you found power of definition impacted any of the work through your 20 years experience working in the youth sector? Yeah. Again, it comes back to what Vanessa was just saying, it's that the conversation, no conversations without us or about us. But if we're not invited to the table, there's no point in having that conversation. I said it earlier, we know what's best. Our communities know what's best for us. But for a long time, we haven't had that power to express that or we've expressed it and the authorities said look no we know better and so I think that the power of ourselves to define who we are what works what we want to be is slowly changing but it's something that we need to keep pushing for. And Barker I guess you know within the intro I talked about how people wanted you to change and I think you know the power of definition around how you define your music on the rest is really speaks to I think Michael's point around how how we see that shift do you think if you had changed the your I guess delivery in your music you would be where you are today 
No. Nah. No, I think, I've, you know, I think that's um, a big thing to be as a musician is you've got to be completely authentic with yourself because we are, I guess hip-hop is, you know, um, adopted from African-American culture. So to honour that culture also but to also be authentic in yourself and not bite it, um, I feel like if I was to trim down parts of me, I wouldn't be my authentic self. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I think yeah, I think it's a it's a probably a, a good point to end this afternoon's deadly yarn with your amazing mob. I just want to, everyone to share their thoughts about: Do you think this is possible for us to see social change within our communities across this great country? I'll come to you first, Vanessa. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna finish on Mike Drop Barker at yeah. the end. Yeah, do that line for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do think it's possible, and I don't necessarily think. It's about necessarily us changing our communities and who we are as First Nations people. We're incredible. We're resilient. We're loving. We're strong. We're welcoming. To keep our culture, we've got to share our culture because sharing our culture is the best way that we keep our culture. And that's something to honour and be really, really proud of. And to say that it's impossible to see change would be disrespectful to our ancestors and our old people because um, they're up there grinning and they're grinning and they're keeping us safe down here. And so, you know, I always believe that the impossible is possible and I guarantee that if you're a non-Indigenous person watching this space, Blackfella, my arms are open for you if you're ready to have the conversation. If you're ready to show up, show up on the streets. Don't just talk about it, but be about it. Show up for your sisters and brothers. Show up on the right side of justice. And always remember that saying nothing is also saying something. Mm-hmm. And that speaks louder than anything. And we see it. As First Nations sisters and brothers, we see it. But more importantly, we feel it. So if you want to be on the right side of humanity and justice, then come stand with us because you are welcome to. And there is no reason why you need to turn your back on us because our backs, our doors, our arms, our elders, our communities are always open. Gosh, she's 24. (laughs) Just putting it out there. Michael, brother Michael. Yeah, thanks for making me follow that. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think, yeah. It is entirely possible for us to make these changes and make the social changes that we want to see. But it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to be a lot of work that a lot of people are going to have to put in. And it's not just us who are going to have to put in the work. It's not just us black fathers that are going to have to put in the work. We've been doing it for 200-odd years. We've been putting in the work. It's about time that we started seeing the support and the allies and stuff coming behind us from all levels, um, seeing the government stand up and take responsibility for what's happened and for being willing to get behind us and help us and let us say who we are, what we can be and what we want for our children growing up and for our communities. So it's going to take a lot of work, but yeah, I think for us it's, highly possible it's just about getting out there working together getting the conversations started continuing those conversations and making sure our voices are heard yeah sounds so simple doesn't it they just listen and lastly my sister barker yeah i agree i can't follow that (laughs) (laughs) yeah no um i agree um i reckon there'll be change um looking at our young ones and how strong they are is, you know, just seeing that the fire inside of them, it just gives you hope for mm. better. And, um, yeah, I think there's change, but, yeah, like you said, there's, there's a lot of work 
to be done. You've just heard artist and musician Barker speaking at the online forum Anger to Action. The event also featured Miko Lachlan, Education Officer for Indigenous X and activist and winner of the 2019 Young People's Human Rights Medal, Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. To take us out tonight, we'll leave you with a track which is in keeping with the theme of the discussion you've just heard. The track is from rap artist Dobby and features the vocals of Barker. It's called I Can't Breathe, which were the final words of both African-American man George Floyd earlier this year, as well as Dungutty man David Dungay Jr. in Long Bay Prison five years ago. The song is a call for justice for the families of the over 437 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission. Sick of having to explain myself They want to know the history, the pain might help They making me wild, need to restrain myself If I were you, I would educate myself Oh no They want me to hate myself To create, dismiss, and erase myself They said Australia and America's not the same I say David Dungay, they don't even know the name That's bullshit Got to your member, tell them what's happening You gotta challenge the white settler narrative Got a lot of books that call us nomadic savages Maybe that's a connection to them attacking us Government thinking up any other solution But truth leads to treaty and revolution Kill us acquitted, your silence is killing Give us your platform so your people can listen First came the massacres, then came the mission then stole the children, then filled the prison No wonder our people do not trust the system Over 400, not one conviction Shame! No justice and no peace They won't charge the police They both said, I can't breathe They both said, I can't breathe No justice and no peace They won't charge the police They both said, I can't breathe They both said, I can't breathe He died when you choked him on his back in the pen means it never happens again some of these cops must have been bullied in pe to kill mob that's why kaepernick took a knee donald trump's calling that a lack of respect but what do you call the knee to the back of your neck huh this shit's as bad as it gets because some of these coppers really don't know how to protect and it's legitimized see they try to minimize genocide no more twitter fights because the revolution televised go Breathe. Breathe. They both said, I can't breathe. breathe.
That was Dobby with the track I Can't Breathe featuring Barker. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when Federal Labor MP Linda Burney and actor and playwright Nakia Louie discuss progressing the Uluru Statement from the heart. And there's this saying, and it was communities can't have a future if they don't know their past. And I think within, you know, especially in 2020 where conversations and politics and values have become so adversarial you know we're almost kind of living in a post-truth world in a way the idea of knowing what our past is is incredibly needed in order for our community to move into the future speaking out is on facebook and you can email the program speaking out at abc.net.au we would love to hear from you i'm larissa berendt and this is speaking out Thank you.